Good morning. Glad to be here with you today. We're going to be in the book of Hosea, wrapping up this book together. Uh, Hosea is in the Old Testament. In my Bible, it's on page 1020. So if that helps, you can go ahead and turn there, and we'll be on the same page together. Had an experience uh, a few weeks ago when I was wa- uh, going to the library. I was going to pick up a book I had requested, and, and I'm walking in, and as I'm walking in, there's a mother and her daughter that are also walking in, like our paths are going to converge at the door. The mom was clearly upset. The girl had done something apparently wrong, and the mom was really laying into her. I heard the mom say, you deliberately did what I told you not to do because you think you're smarter than me. Then she said, I don't even know why I brought you along. As we're getting to the door, she said, I have wasted 15 minutes of my life with you today. So we get to the door. I get there first. I hold it open. The mom is still going off, and the daughter looks at me. I'm holding the door open. She goes, thank you. I was like, you're welcome. Like trying to impart joy to this thing. We go inside to the stairwell, and have you ever had this moment where something's happening, you're out in public, and it's people you don't know, and you start to wonder, should I say something? Should I step in? What am I supposed to do here? And I've kind of discovered in the situations like that, it rarely helps to interfere. It sometimes makes it worse. But um, as a nine on the Enneagram, I'm an expert later at thinking about what I should have said, because I thought about it all day, what I would have said in that moment. Here's what I probably would have said. Hey, ma'am, your daughter gets it. She messed up, and she made you mad. We get that. But rather than continuing to belittle her, I think what she really needs to hear from you is the way home. How do I come home, Mom? How can I make this right? How long will you still be mad at me? Do you really think that, that your time with me was wasted today? Do you regret bringing me? Can we just get back to a better place? Can we grab hands and be happy at the library again? How do I get home? As I've thought about that, I thought in my own life, uh, this question, why is it so hard sometimes to come home to God? When we've wandered, when we've messed up, when we feel like we've made him mad and we just think, gosh, I, I, I just want to come back. I don't like where I ended up. I know it's my fault that I ended up here. I don't like where I am. I really just want to come back home. I want to hold your hand again, God, and I want to be happy at the library. But how do I do that? The book of Hosea is a way home. I love this book. We've been in this book for a few weeks now, and today's kind of wrapping it up. And we've been walking through this book of Hosea, which is really about the way home. As you know, Hosea was a prophet. That was his profession. He was a prophet during the, king, the days of King Jeroboam, Jeroboam, sorry, 800 years before Jesus. Now, under King Jeroboam, Israel was experiencing this time of incredible prosperity. Everything was going right as a nation. And yet, that success began to go right to their heads. And they began to worship this god named Baal. Now, Baal was a god that the Canaanites, another group of people, worshipped. Baal was the god of fertility. Baal brought crops. Baal brought children and fertility. Now, the ancient world believed that when Baal and this goddess Anat would come together, they would produce rain or the seed of Baal that would fall on the crops. 
Now, to get Baal to, to, uh, to get this seed to fall and for the crops to grow, people would do whatever rituals they could to get Baal's attention. Hey, look down here. We need, we need some rain. What, what do we do to get his attention? And so they'd go through some different rituals. They would do rituals like worshiping and golden calves. They would go through some really crazy things. They would sacrifice people sometimes, sacrifice children even. What can we do to get this God's attention? Sometimes they would even go to their temples where there were women whose job was to provide kind of this immoral practice. And the hopes was maybe Baal and Anat will see us in the temple and get a little inspired and then we'll have a great crop. Now, that kind of sounds odd to us today. And we think, wait a minute, God's people, you guys are doing great. Why in the world would you start messing around with something like that? Why would you leave home? And then, of course, we ask, well, why do any of us leave home? (laughs) Why do any of us begin to wander off towards something like this? Maybe as we've thought about the last few weeks, maybe sometimes it's about control. I mean, really, an idol seems kind of foolish to us, but really, an idol is anything that we use and manipulate to think that it's going to give us the illusion of control. Almost like it's this vending machine, and if I put the right coins in it and push the right buttons, I get the right candy out, and I did it my way. I made it happen. Whatever the case, we'll see more in a minute, but whatever the case, God's people were going outside the covenant. They were stepping outside of this marriage to God to go be with this God, Baal, thinking this Baal's going to make it work for us. Now, you take God from his perspective. He's looking down at his people. He sees them running off towards this religious adultery, and he's thinking, how can I reach my bride? How do I show my people how much I love them? How can I show them the way home. So we enter the prophet Hosea. As Jonathan shared a few weeks ago, that, that he said this, prophets compare people to God's standards and then call them to wake up. Hosea's job was to call people, hey, wake up. You guys are asleep in something. You need to wake up from your unfaithfulness and you need to return home to God. That was his job. But before Hosea could deliver a message on unfaithfulness, he would have to live through a marriage of unfaithfulness. Now, as someone who teaches many of you in the same role, you're always looking for a great illustration. You know, maybe you, you see something happening at a sporting event or you, you find a, 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 an object in your house and you think, oh, this would be a great example of how to explain something. Well, for Hosea, in the same way, he's trying to think of a great illustration for this, but he doesn't know that God's going to bring one to him and it's going to be a, an illustration not that he observes, but that he has to live through. And it's going to be an incredibly painful time in his life for a point. He would have to experience the heartache of betrayal firsthand. So he would be able to speak about it knowing the passion and the pain of God. And so as you know how the story goes of what happened, God says to him, "Uh, Hosea, I want you to marry Gomer. Now here's the catch. She is going to be unfaithful to you. She's going to run out on you. Now, there's some debate among scholars about, well, wait a minute, was, was uh, Gomer kind of this woman who was kind of a professional, professional running arounder? Was she kind of known in the community for this? Or was she just a woman that God was saying, hey, one day it's going to end up that everything looks great, but she's going to betray you? And we don't know. I tend to believe, kind of from my understanding of the text, that it was the former that she was a woman who was running around town like this, that was uh, engaged in this kind of activity, and God says, I want you to go marry her, which is a really crazy thought. 
But in any case, what I want you to catch is before Hosea marries Gomer, God does very clearly tell him, hey, this is what's going to happen. She will betray you. And Hosea still says, okay, I'll marry her. So he marries Gomer. They have three kids. And then just as God foretold, Gomer launches herself into this life of unfaithfulness. She's running away. She's running around. She's running around all over town. Now Hosea has heard of, God's, uh, of the sense of betrayal from God, but now he has lived it, and he knows its devastation. And he's the one sitting at home with his three kids going, where's mom? And eventually, as you know, Gomer's running off runs out, and the consequences of her unfaithfulness begins to catch up with her. We find her, and it seems odd in our minds, but we find her kind of being condemned for her lifestyle, and she's up on a slaver's block being sold to whoever has a few shekels. Now, the hypocrisy of this just, it makes me so indignant that she's up on a, a block being sold and being condemned for activity out in the town that if she was just doing it in the temple and getting paid for it, she would have been commended. But such is how far things have gotten in this unfaithfulness. And so she's standing on this block. The auctioneer raises his gavel, and as he does, a voice cries out, and a paddle goes up. And at the other end of that arm holding the paddle is Hosea. Hosea says, I want her back. He's doing something more shocking than taking this woman in marriage in the first place. He's taking her back home. She steps off the stand. He embraces her, and as the text says, he, he puts his hands on her face, and he says, from now on, you're living with me. No more running around, no more unfaithfulness. You're living with me, and I'm going to live with you. And he takes her back home. And now, only now, is Hosea qualified to go and speak to people about betrayal and return to God. And so the rest of the book of Hosea is him trying to unpack with people, unfaithful people like me, and you, here's how you get back home. What is that way back home with God? I, I know some of you may be in a place today where you go, I, I really need to hear this because I do kind of feel a little bit separated from him. Or because there's this thing in my life and I just don't know how to get out of it. I don't know what to do. I want you to hear today the news that there is a way back home kind of some steps that we see that are key in this book, and we're going to move around a little bit in the second half of this book to capture it. But here's his first thought. To come home, we need to see that we've left home. Using his experience with Gomer as a living illustration, Hosea makes the case. He's trying to make the case. Listen, guys, you all know about my marriage, right? It was the talk of the town. You all were talking about it, right? It was all the thing. Well, listen, that's an illustration of what you, God's people, have been doing with God. You've run off and become unfaithful. And so he's making this case that the consequences that you're facing and that you're about to face are coming your way because of your choices. So let me show you, if you'll turn to chapter 13, let me give you an example of him saying, let me lay out the case, guys. You, you were talking so much about Gomer and me, but you don't realize this is really about you. Let me show you how. So in chapter 13, for example, when Ephraim spoke, people trembled. He was exalted in Israel. But then... You, guys, became guilty of Baal worship and died. 
And now they sin more and more. They make idols for themselves from their silver, cleverly fashioned images, all of them the work of craftsmen. You know, it's said of these people, they offer human sacrifices. And they kiss calf idols. Remember we talked about that. Now, it's one thing to say, yeah, the Canaanites, oh, man, those people, they make these sacrifices and they kiss these idols. But, but Hosea is saying, look, you're, you're doing the same thing. We're following that path. Now, I want to remind you, because it's easy here in 2021 to think back and think that this is so primitive. These people were not just following idols for fun. Baal was the god of fertility. The earth is the woman. Baal is the man that fertilizes her. Baal plants the seed. The crops grow. So there was something in their logic system that made this sense. And in, in a way, that, that worshiping these idols and these things were a way for people to kind of cover their bases. Now, let me share a secret about me that you don't know. I just shared it for the first time an hour ago. I'm sharing it for the second time publicly in my life, and it's this. Whenever I fly on an airplane, as opposed to other ways I might fly, but whenever I fly on an airplane, <laughs> um, I, oh, I've been doing this ever since the first time I flew in a plane, and I still do it today. When I'm getting on the airplane, and I'm stepping up, and I'm ready, and then I'm about to step onto the plane, I put my hand right here on my right side, where there's usually a little logo, you know, United Airlines or the heart, whatever, I touch it. Then I go sit down, we have the flight. I'm getting off the plane, I'm waiting, I'm waiting to get off, and right there, when I get off, I put my hand back on that part again. What am I doing? I'm just covering my bases. Now, you might want to wait. You, you're, you might be so excited after this sermon to come up to me and go, well, let me show you in the Bible why that's not true, why that doesn't help. Let me show you through physics or aeronautical engineering. Let me show you all the things, and I'll just smile, and, and I won't pat you on the head, but in my heart, I'll pat you on the head, and guess what I'm going to keep doing? I'm going to touch an airplane, because all your facts and figures, let me tell you one thing. Guess how many planes I've flown on that have crashed? Why not cover my bases? I know in my heart, listen, I know, I know it doesn't work. I know it doesn't mean anything. But I'm not going to stop because I just want to cover my bases. One of the high points of my life was when I was getting off a plane somewhere, I think it was Orlando or something, and I touched the, the, the thing and I, I took my step. And the guy behind me goes, did you just touch the plane? I was like, yes. He goes, I do it too. I was like, I know, we're so smart. We're safe. We're high-fiving, hugging each other like we have unlocked the universe. It's silly, it doesn't make sense, but why not cover your bases? It's silly, it doesn't make sense, but you know what? If, if touching the plane gives me this illusion that somehow we're going to have a, it's okay everyone on the flight, I touch the plane, we are safe. That illusion of control, God did something. That's always how we are, right? I, I can pray and trust God, but I'd rather just also have a little extra, let me do something to ensure Maybe Baal could give us outside the covenant what we felt like we can't just guarantee inside of it with God. But here's the fatal mistake. They were wrong. Baal does not provide crops and fertility. God provides the rain. God provides the, provides the crops. And so Hosea says, listen, God's going to have to show you that only he provides the rain, and he's going to do it in a really hard way. The discipline is going to be he's going to dry up all the rain. You won't have any rain. And then you'll be reminded that it doesn't matter how many idols you kiss, it's not going to make it happen. You're running around, it's going to run out. And so we see in verse, uh, verse 3, Therefore they'll be like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears, like chaff swirling from a threshing floor, like smoke escaping from a window. You're just gonna, you guys are about to experience some dryness. 
Great question. Why do we leave God when times are good? Remember at the beginning I said it wasn't like bad things were happening. Like under Jeroboam's rule, everything was going great. Why would we leave God when times are good? In the next few verses, God shares, uh, shed some light on our rough and rowdy ways. Listen to what he says. He says, I have been the Lord your God ever since you came out of Egypt. You shall acknowledge no God but me, no Savior except me. I cared for you in the wilderness. Remember that? I cared for you in the land of the burning heat. Here it is. When I fed them, they were satisfied. When they were satisfied, they became proud. And then they what? Then they what? Forgot me. See that sequence? I fed them. Things are going great. When things are going great, they start thinking, we don't really need God. Who's God? This might be one of the most bedrock foundational principles in all of human existence. When things are tough, we turn to God. When things are easy, we forget. When we're hungry, we hanker for God. When we are satisfied, fall asleep. So to wake them up, this is what Hosea's warning. God's going to have to shake you up. Now, I want you to hear something about this. This is a good thing God does for us. This seems harsh. This seems horrible. Oh, my gosh, what kind of God would withhold the rain from his people? This is good. Why? It's a good thing that God points out when we've run away from home. Otherwise, we might not realize it. Recently, uh, my wife and Jessica and I were having, some re- were having some remodeling done on our house, and there was this one part where they had to put some new drywall in. So the, the guy finished it left of the day, so Jessica walks in, and she's checking the work. And it seemed like this one wall was off, like it was curved at the top instead of going straight at the top. So she called me in to look at it, and she said, hey, uh, I'm concerned about this wall. I can't tell. Uh, do you think it's straight, or do you think it's crooked? Now, I've been married for 23 years, so so this is not my first rodeo. What do you think I said when she asked me that? Thank you. That's very good. Someone said, what do you think? In the first first message, someone said, well, just say that it's crooked. And it's such a rookie mistake, right? (laughs) Such a classic trap. You never just say it. You just go, you know, I don't know. And as I said, I don't know, Jess, what do you think? She goes, I think it's crooked. I said, I think you're right. It is crooked. So uh, what I've also learned about marriage is my, uh, my stating that it looks crooked. She goes, yeah, I don't care. Let's get the contractor in here. Let's get this guy that we don't even barely know has only been. Let's get, he knows more than you. Come here. So I was like, why did you even ask me? But contractor comes in. He looks at the wall. He goes, yeah, I can't tell if it's crooked or not. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. He goes, wait, I got an idea. So he went and grabbed his leveler. You guys ever seen that? It's about three feet long. It's got the little green tube of liquid in it with a little air bubble. And you know how it works is that when you are holding it perfectly straight, right, up and down, then the little bubble's in the middle, and you know it's straight. He holds up the leveler right to the wall, the accurate standard, and instantly all three of us said, it's crooked. You could tell. We could have stood around debating all day long whether it was crooked or not. We could have had our opinions being shared, but once the standard showed up, Everything was clear. God's word is our leveler. It's our standard. And this is what the job of the prophet is, is to hold up the standard and say, look, guys, I'm not coming at you from opinions here. I'm just showing you this is what, this is what God said we're doing, and we're not doing it. And this is a shaking, and this is a waking for us. And I want you to just be reminded this morning that this is grace. It's grace 
that God holds that leveler up to us. And that's why this first step home is to see that we've left home, to compare our lives to what God's word says, to see the distance, to understand that the consequences we face are a result of our choice to leave him. This, by the way, I, I just throw this out. This is one of the reasons why I, I, being involved with a community of faith like Pulpit Rock and being present is important because when you're in a place where you're hearing God's word brought to you and sometimes the words that you wouldn't have chosen, like, you know, maybe many of you were like, I don't know that I would have chosen to read Hosea this morning. Okay, well, someone else chose it. That's good for us. It's good for us to hear different parts of God's word saying, well, here's the standard here, here's the standard here, here's the standard here. We need that. But there's a problem. I've discovered this. Sometimes in the middle of God's discipline, we might feel like God is so harsh that we miss his heart. I have always struggled with something, and it's this. When I've done wrong, when I've left home, when, I, when I've messed up, when I've clearly done something wrong, I hide from God. I avoid time with him. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to pray. I don't want to open my Bible. I just, I just, let's just pretend like he's, he doesn't see me and I don't see him. Why? It's for the same reason that soaks every page of this book from Adam to Gomer, from the third steward who buried the talents to Peter after the crucifixion. I was afraid. I'm afraid that God's mad at me and he doesn't want to talk to me. I'm afraid that he's going to unleash on me. You know what? It'd be better to let him cool off. Let him calm down. Let's give him a couple days. I'm not going to run from him forever, but just let him kind of, maybe he'll get his attention caught with someone else. Maybe someone else will mess up worse than me, and God will go over there, and I'm kind of good. I can sneak back in the back door. There's some shame or fear in us that makes us believe there's not a way home. And this is really the sad thing. The sad thing is not just that we wander away. The sad thing is that there's something in us that believes a lie that there's no way back home. Like that little girl in the parking lot wondering, is mom going to be mad forever? Does she really regret me? Will she welcome me back? See, in the midst of this, this uh, famine that, that Jose is talking about, it'd be easy to go, well, look, God's just so mad at us. There's nothing we can do. Just this morning, uh, uh, during a worship time, I, I was reminded of this verse, Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God because the one who approaches him must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. So somehow it's connected. For us to return home to God, we can't just believe that God is there. There's something we have to believe about the heart of God. Is, do I believe that he's a rewarder of those who return to him? You have to have that. So this piece I want to share with you right now about what are we believing about the heart of God is really important because if we don't believe the right thing about the heart of God, we will never come home. What is the right thing about that? Well, it's this. We have to hope in the heart of God. We have to put our hope that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. In Hosea chapter 11, if you'll flip back a couple chapters and go there, God rips open his chest and pours out his heart and we see what I think is one of the most vulnerable and powerful moments we humans are ever going to get to hear a God say. This does not sound like any God that's ever out there but this is our God saying who he is. Listen to this in Hosea 11. When Israel, my people, was a child I loved him. Out of Egypt I called my son but the more they were called the more they went away from me. 
It was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms, but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness and ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Through all that, my people are determined to turn from me. And even though they call me God most high, I will by no means exalt them. Can you hear his heart? The heart of one betrayed? Hey, look what I've done for you, and yet you're determined. I mean, who could blame him for not exalting us? Who could blame him for feeling like he wasted his time with us? Who could blame him for wanting to leave us? But in spite of how much we turn away from him, God doesn't turn away from us. Listen. But how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. I will not carry out my fierce anger. You know, I'm not going to devastate Ephraim again. I am God. I'm not a man. I'm not someone that has to get people back. I'm not someone who's governed by these kind of emotions out of control. I am God, not a man. I am the Holy One among you, and I tell you I will not come against your cities. We see a God change his heart. His compassion is aroused. Nothing changed with what we did, but something changed. What is going on here? Up until now, we've seen the heart of God as a beloved husband. We've seen the heart of God as a jilted lover. We've seen the heart of God as a a spouse who won't give up. But in chapter 11, we see the heart of God in something very different. This is the heart that taught the helpless to walk. This is the heart that's healed the wounded. This is the heart that's kissed the boo-boos. This is the heart that's nuzzled little ones, that has stooped to feed ones who could not feed themselves. This is the heart that knows it has to discipline, but hates that it has to hurt. This is a heart that looks at a disobedient, disrespectful, defiant face and says, I am roused to compassion. Who in the world resonates with that heart? Every parent on the planet. My daughter, my baby daughter, uh, my little girl recently got engaged. Um, Two days ago, she was just a little baby. I was changing her diaper, and then now she's engaged. How did that happen in one day? I remember, I've been thinking a lot about remembering. Um, I remember when she was just a, a month or two old, and you know the thing where you're trying to help your child sleep through the night, and they don't like sleeping through the night? I love sleeping through the night. I would love that, but she did not, and she would lie in bed and cry. Well, you, you know this when you have a baby. You can't just run in and pick them up all the time, or they'll never learn how to sleep for themselves. And so we would put her in her crib, and we'd turn on this little baby monitor. Jessica and I would go to our room. We'd get in our bed. We'd lay there, and we'd just hold hands, and we'd hear her cry. And we were holding hands because we knew that at any given moment, one of us would be weak enough to give in. And I was like, no, 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 don't go. No, but I have to. No, 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 don't go. You feel it just hurts. And we knew we were doing the right thing. And there was a point sometimes where we'd go, okay, she's really, it's too much. We've got to go in there. We knew we were doing the right thing. We're being good parents. We're providing discipline, but it hurts. It's not fun. This overwhelming urge. And I remember lying in bed thinking, wow, 
Parenting is the hardest thing in the world. And yet that was just the beginning of the parent's pain. Disciplining kids is hard. And every good parent does it. Even when they don't understand. Even when they think it's the worst thing ever. Even when you're the meanest person ever. Even when they can't see our heart. I hate you. You don't care. You don't love me. All untrue. All said out loud. And it breaks our hearts. But how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I give you up? Even these sometimes mean faces with their lips turned and their eyes burning, there's something in there when you see it, it rouses compassion in you. Why would God let Hosea and Gomer walk through what they did? Because they both walked through this. I think it's so that we could see the heart of God for runners to return. Hey, it's safe to step off that stand and be re-embraced. It's safe for God to put his hands back on your face and say, come on, no more running around. You come home, you live with me, I'm going to live with you. This is the heart of God that if we, don't, if we don't see this heart, we won't come back home. When we realize, okay, I see this heart, I do want to come back home, then what do we do? Well, this third step, this last step, this you know, Hosea has woken people up and now they're awake and they go, but what do we do? And then he shows them what coming home looks like. And it's a very simple phrase. It's choose to return. Come on, make the decision to come home. And if you'll turn with me to the very last chapter of Hosea, Hosea 14, uh, these few words together, there's a lot to unpack here. I encourage you to look back again because it's a master class in returning home. It's so amazing in just two verses. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. How do you do it? Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins, receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Returning to God is, first of all, admitting. Your sins have been your downfall. You know, you're right, God. What I've been trusting in, what I've been trying to do, what I've been trying to work, my own method, this idol I've been following, whatever, it hasn't worked. It's been my downfall. I admit that. Returning is confessing. Forgive all our sins. And God, you know, this thing I was doing, it wasn't just a mistake or just a, you know, thoughtless act. It was a sin. Let me just call it what it was. I mean, if it's just a thoughtless act, there's nothing to forgive. If it's a sin, you can work with that. So let me just name it. Returning is asking to be received. Look at this line. Receive us graciously. We don't demand it from you, God. We don't say, well, you better do. No, no. Listen, I understand that it's all grace. I don't earn it. I don't deserve it. But you're going to give it to me. I'm going to ask you graciously for it. And returning is looking ahead. This is one of my favorite parts about restoration and returning. Do all this, Lord, so that we may offer the fruit of our lips. God, the, the point of us being restored back with you is we want to get back on the horse. We want to get back riding with you. We want to come back living with you. We want to get back using our words and our ways to follow you. We, that's what we want. We want to get back to the way it was. We want to hold your hand again and go into the library. We're looking forward and hope to the fact that you're a God that says, I'm not just going to restore you, but come on, we'll be back together again. That's the heart. That's what we're longing for.
Now, we may always bear the scars from our scattering. Please hear this. We may always have the limps from leaving home. I, I'm, I, I, a weird part of my brain is I always want to know what happens after the verse ends. Like uh, after Homer, af- Homer, after um, Hosea and Gomer, they go home. I want to know what was, li- what was it like that first night at home? Everything was great? We just had dinner and watched TV and went to bed? Like what, what happens as they're trying to put the pieces back? There were scars and pains and, and troubles, but God is a God who's restoring those who return. Isn't that hopeful? That we can rebuild what's been broken with God, with others, with ourselves. But it comes back to that question we started with. Why is it so hard to return to God? And I really think for me, it is that I often really doubt what's waiting for me on the other side of the door. And so I want to close this morning by showing you out of Hosea just one more facet of this heart of God that I hope will cement for you that this is the kind of God that's coming after you. In Hosea 13, um, Hosea begins to get, speak pretty lyrical about how God is talking. So God is speaking now through Hosea. God is talking about, here's how I'm going to treat, here's how I'm going to go after the people that have left me. He says, I will be like a lion to them. Like a leopard, I will lurk by the path. Like a bear robbed of her cubs, I will attack them and rip them open. Like a lion, I will devour them. A wild animal will tear them apart. We're in Colorado here. We understand the stories of bears. We've seen bears. We interact with them. You, you don't want to mess with a bear when their cubs are on the line. God says, this is the kind of heart I have when I see my people being taken away and deceived. Then we look at Hosea chapter 14, there towards the end of the book, and God again is speaking, Oh, Ephraim, what more have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am a luxuriant cypress, and from me comes your fruit. Kind of the, the thought here is that when, when Ephraim, when Israel returns, God's going to heal them. He's going to love them. I'm going to be this tree. You're going to have fruit. I'm going to answer you when you call me. I'm going to look after you. I'm going to look after you. Now, I want to put these two verses together, and here's the point. When my kids are taken, taken captive, taken deceptive, when they've run away, I'm going to lurk like a bear. When my kids come home, I'm going to look after them. This is not just a cute play on words with the same letter. In the original language, these are the exact same word. The lurking and the looking are the two sides of this heart of God. A wild bear that's robbed of her cubs is going to fight ferociously after an attacker. You do not want to be between a cub and her mama. Yet this same bear is going to watch intensely over the care of these cubs. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. God is the mama bear. You threaten her cubs, she will lurk and attack and rip, but you return to the den and mama bear will quite literally die for the cubs. So the message of Hosea for Israel is this, repent, stop running from mama bear, come home to him and let him protect you again. And I would throw out to us this morning that this is God's mama bear heart for us as well. Return, I'll restore you. So where are you stuck today? Where are you experiencing some unfaithfulness? Where do you feel like, you know, I've messed up, 
or I'm just not doing this right, and I'm just kind of over here, and I just don't know how to get back. I just don't like where I am. I wish I could come home. Please hear this. You can. If you have wandered, if you've been unfaithful, if you are broken, if you're standing on a slaver's block going, well, I guess I don't know, I don't know what my life's going to be like right now, God still stands with his shekels in his hand ready to buy you back, say, you are my bride, you will come home, you will live with me, no more running around, you live with me, I'm going to live with you forever, let's go. In just a moment, we're going to take communion together, which is a demonstration of return. And as we prepare for that, will you pause with me and pray? God, we ask for the faith to believe that not only do you exist, but that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. You are a restorer of those who return to you. Armed with that, we open our lives to you right now and ask, God, are there any ways that we've been wandering? Are there any ways that we've left home? As that thing is settling in my heart, that probably that first thing that popped into my mind, I, I just want to say, by faith, God, I believe you're a God that wants me to return to you. And I want to take this time during communion today, Lord, to express to you my hope to return and to see you begin restoring me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is what communion is for. And for those of you at home that maybe have gathered your elements already or those of you when you walked in, if you grabbed the elements yourself or in a moment when our music begins to play and we open the tables, you want to move to one of our places where there, the elements are available. This is what communion is for. Communion is not just for faithful followers. It's for us who need to come home. Communion is admitting. Relying on my own methods has not worked. Communion is confessing. When I'm really talking about God, this is a sin. I admit that. Communion is asking to be received. God, I know I don't have the right to demand this of you, but just as I receive these elements, I also want to receive your grace and forgiveness. And communion is looking ahead. God, I leave this table. I leave this moment of communion renewed in my excitement about walking with you again with the fruit of my lips. So this morning as we move towards communion, I just invite you to take that time as you have the elements to just confess and walk through that with him and agree with him. Don't argue with him. Just confess it and thank him for loving you. And, and when you're ready, take the bread and take the broken body, take the cup of the shed blood of Christ as the living proof, the living illustration of God's commitment to your returning. The tables are now open.